Hello from me too, church. My name is John and I've been around here a long time. But I had the privilege of opening God's Word with us as we continue our series that we're in at the moment, working our way through the Old Testament book of Judges. Fascinating stories. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we looked at the life of Gideon, the the first part of Gideon's life. Gideon's life spans four chapters in Judges. Six, seven, eight, nine. So last week we were looking at six, seven, and we saw that that Gideon was the underdog, but God called him, empowered him, and worked through him, and Gideon was able to save Israel from the oppression that the Midianites were just just crushing them with. 300 soldiers is all that, that Gideon went to confront that army. That powerful army that God enabled Midian and the plan that, that God had worked through Midian to be able to, to rout the, the Midianites against themselves. It's a fascinating story. It's one of my favourite Old Testament Bible stories. The way that God worked through Gideon and when God said to him and promised him, I will be with you. And Gideon chose to believe and had the faith to go and do as God called him to do. And God was with him. It's a fascinating story. I love this story. Did you know that there's even an international ministry named Gideon's International which you'll see a picture of. That international ministry, its main objective is to produce and then distribute Bibles all around the world free of charge. Now, we support that ministry here at BPCC because we've got some members in our church who are involved in this ministry. It is a fascinating story of Gideon's work and life. And but that's the first half. Today we get to the second half. We get to the sad part of Gideon's life. The part that few of us have probably even read about because it is so disappointing. And few preachers refer to this part of Gideon's life. Sadly, Gideon's life didn't end all that well. And what we learn from his latter part is really important for us to hear and to learn from. And I want to start by clarifying a very important biblical truth, church. And it's very clearly seen in the latter part of Gideon's life. And the truth is this, and it comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, where the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all else. And what we're going to see this morning is how Gideon's heart went wobbly. You know, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul, he gives a very strong caution to believers and he says, you know, these stories that we read about in the Old Testament are given there for us to learn from. This is what we read in 
1 Corinthians 10 verses 11 and 12 where Paul writes, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So before we get into this second part of his life, let's understand, friends, that what we are going to be looking at is written and recorded and told to us as a caution, as a warning, lest we too fall. How you finish in life is very often how you will be remembered. Let me say that again. How you finish is how you will be remembered. You know, I've known some great guys throughout my life. Great dads. Great dads. And some of them were men that I really respected and I looked up to. But then after an affair, one of those guys that's in my mind, he wrecked his marriage and he wrecked his family. That's how he's now remembered. I know of ministers, pastors, those who are in the, in the calling that I'm involved in. I know of one in particular and he's a very gifted leader, very gifted leader and his ministry was producing amazing fruit but it collapsed when it was revealed that he was a bit of a bully to his co-leaders. Behind closed doors he was different to the person that he was in public. Now you know of stories too of people who, who started really well, who did really amazing things, even sports people. We can think of sports people, we can think of business people, we can think of work colleagues. They started strong, but then the wheels fell off. The wheels fell off. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So let's go to Gideon's life again. We left him last week at the height of his influence, a reputation as a mighty man of valour, a man who trusted in God, a man who showed his love for God by obeying God. God used him to rescue Israel, God's people. It truly was a great victory. And as we now get to chapter 8, as is often the case, following a great victory the people are criticising and uncooperative. And this is how chapter 8 starts. Now the Ephraimites, or the Ephraimites, that's a group of, Israel, of the Israelites, a people group, they ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. Now Ephraim is a very influential clan amongst the Israelites. It's a big clan, a very important people group. And they are upset that they weren't able to share in the glory of defeating the Midianite army. And then as a further insult and opposition to Gideon, from the townspeople that lived in two different towns, one town called Succoth and the other Peniel, they are, they are not cooperating with him in what he wants to do. Now, to the first group, the Ephraimites, Gideon responds with flattery. He placates them. 
because he doesn't want to lose their favour. He's a bit like a politician. It's just, you know, all of a sudden they're our best friends. But with the people in these small towns that opposed him, he threatened revenge, cruel revenge. And as you read on in chapter 8, you see that Gideon tortured the town leaders of Succoth by wrapping them in, in thorn bush branches and then beating them. And to the people in the town of Peniel, he killed them because they opposed him. And this behaviour is so inconsistent compared to his behaviour in chapters 6 and 7. Here, now, Gideon does not consult God before he acts. He simply did what he wanted to do based on what he had the power to do. And what this points out is Gideon's heart is starting to change. Fresh off the miraculous victory that God enabled him to be part of in defeating the Midianite army, he has now seemingly forgot that it is God's war he's fighting, it is God's business he is about. Now he's allowing himself to be fuelled by his own desire and his own power. But there was a lot of other people in Israel and Gideon's new reputation resulted in him being asked to be their new king. We read in Judges 8 verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's the right answer. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. So Gideon gives the right answer. No, I will not be your king, and nor will my sons be your king. The Lord will rule over you. So he says that, but we start to see evidence that he's not really convicted and convinced himself. Because now he goes on to ask for a reward as acknowledgement of his new position of influence and power. They answered, the Israelites, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold ring he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian on the ch- or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod which he placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, an, an ephod is a sacred garment that was worn by the high priest when he entered the presence of God to make requests to God on behalf of his people. And the ephod that 
was made originally, as per God's instruction, was only to be worn by the high priest. And, the only, and then the other stipulation was in the tabernacle and it was to be the priest from the tribe of Levi. So we see here something unhealthy is happening in Gideon's heart. Rather than directing people to God, he's redirecting them to regard him as the source of all truth and wisdom. And he sets up this, this place of a shrine. Come and get your information and your news from me. There's, there's a subtle rise of self-importance growing here. Making an ephod and setting it up in his hometown as a monument to himself shows that he is developing an attitude and a heart of self-glorification. The heart is deceitful above all else. Success. Coupled to our deceitful hearts ignites the idea that we are very important. And with self-importance comes presumption of privilege. Realise, success can be a tool that our spiritual enemy will use to draw us away from God. So, when you look in the mirror, do you see a bit of Gideon in yourself? I do. And if we don't keep that unhealthy trait submitted to God, it will lead us away from God, it will lead us away from experiencing his his grace. The heart is deceitful above all else. So now instead of being the towering example of someone who truly trusted God and God honoured his faith, Gideon's later life becomes a stumbling block to the people. He, He kept them from going to God by coming to him. That is the subtle seductive truth about success. It will fuel our hearts to presume that we are entitled to privilege and importance and it leads us to think that, you know, it's really all about me. And when my needs aren't met or if I'm not getting what I want, then look out, I won't come back. None of us are immune to this sad truth about our carnal heart. Friends, you know what I've come to realise as a truth about myself and you? Tests of adversity. You know, those things that happen in life that really hurt and make us call out to God. And those tests of adversity, adversity, we can endure them. But the tests of success, the tests of prosperity... They are harder to handle, to endure. Let me share with you some indicators of our success drawing us away from God. And the first is infrequent prayer. We see that with Gideon. Off the heels of that wonderful victory, Gideon stops consulting God. 
He did what he wanted to do. So when I'm going through this material during the week, I ask myself the question, I want to ask you the question, how's your prayer life, friend? How's your prayer life? Was your prayer life more intentional and genuine when you were going through a time of challenge? Mine was. Mine is. Failure to consult others. This is what happens. This is what we see as an indicator of our success drawing us away from God because now we're pretty crash hot. Gideon became arrogant. His former humility left him as his self-importance deluded him. You know what it says in Proverbs 18 verse 1? It says, an isolated man seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Do you seek input from others? Do you seek their counsel? Do you you accept advice? If I asked your spouse or your kids that question, would they agree with the answer that you just gave yourself? This one, resentment. You know, when it's all about me, when it's all about you, you resent those who get in your way. When the townsfolk in Peniel refused to help Gideon, he killed them. The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? And then here's another indicator of success drawing us away from God. Materialistic excess or material... Ouch! Success very often allows us to enjoy extra, doesn't it? And, and, And in and of itself, that's not a wrong thing. But the seductive side of success fuels selfishness and greed, entitlement. We read that materialistic excess became a snare to Gideon and his family. These are the indicators of our success drawing us away from God. And we need to, we need to work our way through these and, and think, well, where am I here on that scale? Because our evil enemy is real. And those of us living in this Western world, with our riches, we very easily want to just play with our toys and do what we want to do and ignore God and his people. When we get to the end of chapter 8, we read that Israel enjoyed peace for 40 years. And then during that time, Gideon lived an increasingly privileged life. He was wealthy, he indulged himself in the prosperities that come with success. Look here, chapter 8, verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. Now Jeroboam is, is the other name that Gideon was given when, if you remember last week, 
when Gideon tore down the altars that his father had built to Baal. Gideon had pulled them down and the people gave him this name, Jerubbaal. In verse 30 it says, He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. No kidding. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah of the Abiezrites. Now this thing about multiple wives, God never endorses or justifies someone having multiple wives. But this detail recorded here in God's word for us indicates that privileged entitlement in the ancient Middle Eastern cultures included multiple wives. And Gideon got swallowed up in this practice that privileged people practised. And then to show how wobbly Gideon had become, we read that he also had concubines. And one of them bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Do you know what that name stands for? you know what that means? The word Abimelech in Hebrew is, my father is the king. But remember how just little whiles back when the people said, you become our king because you have saved Israel? He says, no, I'm not going to be your king, your lord. The lord will rule over us. But he didn't really mean it. His sense of... His sense of self-importance led him to reveal his true heart by naming his illegitimate son Abimelech. My father is the king. And then Gideon died. So how you finish is very often how you'll be remembered. But let me remind us of the amazing truth about God's grace and God's goodness to us, us broken people, including Gideon. Despite Gideon's faults, God included him in the hall of fame recorded in Hebrews 11 of the men and women of great faith. Gideon's faith in God was real. His faith enabled him to deliver Israel from the Midianites' terrible oppression. And this latter part of Gideon's life, it highlights, friends, God's grace and God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness guarantees our security in him too. Our eternity with him, despite our personal faults and flaws. You know, very often... Our spiritual enemy, when we go belly flop, when we do again what we don't want to do, but we do it again and we think, oh God, just he'll, he's given up on me. The evil one wants us to think that that's the case. But in Gideon's life, we see that God's amazing faithfulness continued to uphold his son Gideon because of his faith. This amazing love of God, it draws us to worship him and to obey him. So here's been 40 years of peace since Gideon's army of 300 defeated the Midianites. Now Gideon has died and the people whom he was leading 
had again wandered further and further and further away from God. And now Abimelech, his illegitimate son, grows up and he wants to be the leader of Israel. And we read in Judges chapter 9, verse 1, Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers <coughs> in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So Abimelech wants to become king. So he goes to his people and says, what about it? And Abimelech's lust for power led him to hire thugs to deal with anyone that was opposed to his plan. We read on, when the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is a relative of us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Be'erith and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Oprah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. Now it's hard to believe someone would do these things. But as we read, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? On the screen, Shechem, this, this town, this city, it, it is an historically significant place for God's people. Shechem is the birthplace of their nation, Israel, as God's chosen people. Because this is the place where God, centuries earlier, promised to Abraham that he would become the father of all believers. Genesis 3, we read the story. It's again talked about in Galatians somewhere. And God renewed this promise with Joshua. Joshua 24, verse 1. And it was also at Shechem that Joseph, you know the story about Joseph and all of his brothers who, you know, the tribes of Israel are named after, Joseph the, with the coat of many colours. It was at Shechem that his brothers betrayed him and he ends up in Egypt, right? All that time back. And it's in Egypt in the end when all of God's people go there because of the famine. And then it was Moses that God sent to lead them out to their promised land. Now they're in their promised land. We're back in the town where it was all talked about. So we go back to the life of Abimelech. Now we're in chapter 9, verse 5. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the mount of Mount Gerizim, the top of Mount Gerizim, and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Now Jotham, young Jotham, he's the only one of the 70 that didn't die. He was the underdog in the family, much like his, his father Gideon was when we first met him. Jotham tells the people a very long, weird parable. And if you've been reading ahead, you, you would have gone, what? 
It's about a bunch of trees. Listen to me. It's about a bunch of trees in a forest who decide they want to choose a king. This is a story that Jotham is telling the people. And first they go to the olive tree. Will you be our king? No, says the olive tree. I'm getting too rich from my olives. I don't have time to be the king. And they go to all the other kinds of trees in the forest, asking them in turn, will you be our king? And every tree gives excuses for not taking the responsibility of being the leader. And then finally they come to the thorn bush. Finally all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. And the thorn bush says yes. And he burnt down all of the other trees. Now I said it was a weird story. But Jotham's point was clear to those who heard it. Gideon's other sons were not prepared to leave their comfortable, privileged lives to lead and call Israel back to God. They had been just as seduced as what Gideon was. Choose someone else, not me. So Jotham ends this parable by telling the people, this is going to come back on you. Anyway, he then flees, which is very understandable. But let's ask ourselves something about this detail in God's word. Is there something that God wants you and me to consider here personally? The brothers excused themselves from being involved. Too busy. They excused themselves from being difference makers for God. I don't want the hassle. So the question I want to ask you is, could you amp up, could you amp up your involvement in God's mission here, today, in your life, in this city, in this church? You know, when Jesus told his parables, he would often end them by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, as predicted, Abimelech turns out to be a terrible leader and Israel implodes. I mean, really implodes. There's no opposition now coming from outside. It's Judges 9, verse 50. Abimelech, after a lot of history, fascinating story, but it's very long. Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. It's a city. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman, a woman again, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull and said to herself, that'll learn him. (laughs) And that's how his life ended. Abimelech, who wanted to become the king, So now Abimelech is dead. 
Verse 56, that's God repaid. That's God. Who's doing this? Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. So what is, friends, let's, let's gather around the circle. What is this disappointing chapter in the lives of God's people teaching us? I want to highlight three things. And the first is this. God's judgment is slow and sometimes subtle, but always sure. You know, I've had people come to me and they say, do you think it's the end of the world with what's happening here and there and all of these terrible things? I'm not sure, but I do know that it is going to come. The ending of this story shows that God has and is always at work. The whole time the events in Gideon's life and Abimelech's life were occurring, God was working and God continues to work. Despite back then that God's people were sliding away from him and the evil just seemed to be winning and and God seems absent. But in the end, God had his final say with them and he will have his final say with us too. Perfect justice will be served and God's purposes will be fully accomplished. So let me encourage those of you who are in a place of confusion or uncertainty or or you're wondering about God's reality, you know, whether he is in your life. Let this story encourage you to stay the course. Stay the course. Second thing I think we see here is that the problem isn't out there, friends. It's in here. In this story of Gideon and Abimelech, we see God allowing them to experience the results of their own selfish, sinful choices. And how often, isn't it true, you know, when we get into those really tough places, some of those adversities that we have in life, they've come about because of unwise behaviours or decisions that we've made. Not always. That's why the fact that the problem is not really out there but it's in here, that's why this next take home is so important. We all need a new king. A king who can cure our hearts. We mistakenly, you know, just come to God wanting him to, de- to deliver us from, you know, the bad things in life, like the pain and the brokenness and relationship challenges and the lack of money and all of that stuff that we pray for because it's hard. But that's not what we need most. What we need most is freedom from our own hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now I want you to think about this as I land. What if God answered all of our big prayers and he gave us all that we asked for? Prosperity, education, government, perfect government. Would that create heaven on earth? What if we had, you and I, each had 
infinite amounts of money. We would never have another care with money. Are the richest people the most virtuous when you look around? Does the name the Kardashians mean anything to you? And what about if we were all educated? We, we educated all of the people, even those that live in the suburbs and in, in those bad postcode areas. Just give them a good education. Does education eradicate evil? Stalin, Lenin, Hitler, they were extremely well-educated people. Friends, the heart has to be changed. Your heart, my heart, it has to be changed. We need a saviour who can deliver us from not only the curse around us and the brokenness, but the curse that is within us as well. We don't just need a saviour to fix our situation. We need a saviour who can fix us. We need a king who will not only rule and love and provide justice, but we need, we need a king who can make us like him. That's why all of these messy stories, these disappointing episodes in the history of God's people point us to the ultimate king who would come and did come and is coming again, Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus was not like Gideon. Gideon wanted privilege and he wanted position and he wanted power and ephod. But Jesus, he came to serve. He died for your sin and my sin and Gideon's sin. He came to save us, to make us a people that would go and tell the world about his love and grace and purpose. You know, the world thinks salvation is a better situation, you know, like a, a new marriage or better finances. That's not salvation. Salvation is being embraced by the Saviour for whom you and I were created to be in relationship with. And when we are in relationship with him, when we know him, he by his spirit changes our hearts so that we can become more and more like him. So I want to end with this question. What is God saying to you this morning? Where is your heart pointing? To the Saviour or to self? How about we come into prayer and we take that question to you, God, in prayer. And I pray for everyone, Lord, that you would convict us by your spirit. For those of us, Lord, that have started to wobble a bit in our faith, in our relationship with you, Lord, we want to repent and we want to come back into your presence where you will give us everything that we need to deal with the challenges in this broken world, where you, Lord, will lead us as we use our skill set, our talents, our treasures to make a difference in this broken world in which you've placed us. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for a community like we're a part of. May we encourage each other, Lord, to revel in the privileged position we have as forgiven sinners, heaven-bound, called to make a difference for you. 
So beginning with me and then the person sitting in each seat, will you take us from here with a resolve to be more and more like you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, in front of us is the table that